0: Good morning, everyone. So our first reading this morning is from Proverbs chapter 31, which can be found on page 496 of the Church Bibles. And we'll be starting on verse 10 until 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hands, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes a seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Our next reading is from Titus chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verses 1 till 10. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word, word of God. <laughs> Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example of by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. This is
1: the word of the Lord. Sard, so, thank you very, very much uh, for reading that to us. And welcome, everyone. Um, welcome to Christchurch Ballam, especially if this is your first time here or, or just looking in on Christian things. If you can help me, keep uh, Titus chapter 2 open. That's page 901. i love you to follow with me. I'm aware this is a controversial passage, isn't it? Um, any passage which speaks of uh, women, uh, wives submitting, being busy at home, uh, addressing slaves, I'm aware. Wow, what a minefield. And um, if, you, if you don't mind, I'm going to spend a little bit longer than usual. because so I want to explain things a bit more depth, add a few more caveats. Um, so if you give me a little bit more time than, than I would normally do, I think that would help us. But please follow along with me. And on the back of your handouts, you'll see a server sheet, um, see where we're going to go over the next few moments. Uh, let me pray. Father God, as we've just said together, this is your word. And we thank you for that. Help us to believe that to be true. Help us to see, Lord, that these words written 2,000 years ago aren't just antiquated, but it's exactly what we all need to hear this morning. Whether we're men or women, young or old, whatever position of life we're in, help us see that your word is good. And that your grace is designed to produce good in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of Walter Mischel. He's the, the Ivy League psychologist who came up with this really famous experiment about marshmallows. You may have heard of it. He, he got a whole bunch of five-year-olds and showed them into a room where there was a marshmallow on a plate. And he told them, I'm going out for 15 minutes. Um, if you don't eat the marshmallow, you can have a second one when I return. And as you can expect, there were mixed results. Uh, some of the children, you know, barely waited a second for wolfing down that marshmallow. Others, you know, stared at it with self-restraint, knowing, hanging on that one day they might get a second uh, marshmallow. And, but we might know that experiment. But what's interesting is that Walter Mischel went on to follow the most self-controlled children throughout the rest of their lives. As teenagers, they went on to show they have higher exam results. As adults, they coped better with stress and earned more advanced degrees. Uh, and now as they enter their 50s and 60s, they were generally, uh, they're generally wealthier and healthier than their less self-controlled uh, friends. Now, if, like me, you're suddenly terrified <laughs> that you, already your children are set up to fail in life, don't be. Don't be. Here's Walter Mischel's key finding. He said this recently in the New York Times. Whether, you, whether or not you eat the marshmallow age five is not your destiny. Self control can be taught. Now, that is very good news for us here this morning, because in many and various ways, each of us here struggle with self control. I expect all of us would put our hands up and say we struggle with self control, uh, maybe over our tongues. As we fight the urge not to badmouth our bosses with everyone else or, or, or slag off our spouse with our friends, or, or maybe um, self control over our bodies, as we fight addiction to, to junk food or chocolate or alcohol or pornography or other substances. Or maybe it's self control over our minds, uh, not to give in to the urge to be bitter or, or cynical about life's duties and responsibilities. Self-control is what we all need. The problem is, is that very often self-control is not what we want, is it? Especially in our culture. Very uh, often we follow the priorities of our culture, where, in, where we choose self-indulgence over self-control, where we choose freedom over submission where we choose rights over responsibility. Now, this is precisely the issue facing the church in Crete. This was a culture which celebrated greed and, and treachery and self-indulgence. And don't take my word for it. Listen to the Greek historian Polybius. Here's how he writes about life on the island. He says, in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatsoever. Now, with a few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete, and no public policy more inequitable. So it's not just the mainland Greeks who kind of look down their noses at the, uh, at the Cretans. Even the Cretans' own prophets said that they're, well, that they're not great. Remember last week, Paul quoted Ep- Epimenides. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This statement is true. If that was the culture on the island, then you can imagine how hard it was, therefore, for the church to live self-controlled lives. Well, how on earth can this happen? Well, the answer's in verse one. Just look down. Paul gives this charge to Titus, his deputy, responsible for the, for the churches in Crete. Paul writes this, you, Titus, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So for Paul, the thing which is going to change the church back then and here today is the teaching of sound, healthy doctrine. Now here's the unfortunate thing. The unfortunate thing is that in today's passage, Paul doesn't actually tell us what that healthy, sound doctrine is. He just tells us what happens when you teach that healthy and sound doctrine. So if you like, today, today's sermon is part one of two. You have to come back next week to hear the gospel of grace. But today in this passage, we hear the good things that grace produces in us. Okay, Today is not the good news. Today is the effect of good news in us. Okay, so the first thing we're going to see, and here's where we're going to spend most of our time, we're going to see that the teaching of sound doctrine is going to produce a self-controlled church. And notice that is the repeated theme. As Paul addresses all the various different groups in the church, self-control keeps popping up. So look at verse 2. First of all, he addresses the older men. Verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith in love and in endurance. Now, a little bit of thought experiment. I don't know what age you think is old, okay? In your head, what age is old? Now, it's going to differ, isn't it, depending on how old you are. I'm sure Mark Taylor over there at the Sound Death, he probably doesn't think he's old. <laughs> but most of the 20-year-olds in the room look at him and think he's decrepit. Um, <laughs> But it's useful to remember, isn't it, that, that in, in Paul's day, in Paul's day, life expectancy was much lower than it is now. Someone in their 40s or 50s were considered, you know, at the end of their life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can edit, we can edit this bit out. It's funny, isn't it? We, we like to imagine, don't we, as people grow older. They always grow sweeter and more lovely because that's kind of what we see on TV. Visit any retirement home and you'll see that's not always the case. In fact, very often it's not the case. If someone spent 80 years of their life rejecting God, rejecting Christ, living their own way, the crown on their own head, often by the time they're in their 80s, they're not that pleasant to be around. Uh, particularly if they're in pain. But by way of contrast, older Christians are usually wonderful to be around. Because they've had 80 years of the Holy Spirit working on them, making them more like Jesus. And I praise God that each week of these, more and more seniors and older people are joining us here at CCB. We should praise God for that. So what does Paul instruct the older men here? They're to be temperate, not given over to excess. They're to be sound in faith and in love, not cynical and grumpy. They're to be full of endurance, and not giving up on loving and serving others, but enduring. And then verse 3, he moves on to address the older women and then the younger women. Verse 3, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. I'd love to give you a little bit of background to what's going on here. Um, at the time when Paul wrote this letter, there's something of a, we might call it a proto-feminist trend sweeping the Mediterranean world. Uh, we now call it the New Roman Woman Movement. And it encouraged wealthy women, wealthy ladies, to abandon their positions as wives and mothers in the home. And instead, to go around wearing scandalously transparent clothing with elaborate hairstyles. To be sexually promiscuous outside the home, indulging all of life's pleasures. And to lounge around all day, I guess, drinking Pinot Grigio while slagging off their husbands. All across the Mediterranean, this was happening. Um, here's how one scholar uh, describes it in a recent book. She wrote this, The new Roman woman was a radical departure from the ideal Roman matron, who instead of being virtuous and industrious, was nothing short of a lazy cougar, accumulating young lovers in a scandalous fashion. Now, this is most likely the backdrop behind what Paul is writing to the women here in the church. He's concerned that, that they're walking in the footsteps of the Cretan god Zeus, who is a lying, promiscuous deity. When instead, they should be walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, the faithful God who does not lie. So what Paul writes here, I want you to see, it would have been just as controversial then when he wrote it in the backdrop of this uh, new Roman women movement as it is for us here today in 21st century Britain. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but our culture is pretty schizophrenic in terms of what it expects of women. Have you ever, ever seen that? On one hand, it looks down in pity on single women. As though there's something um, wrong with them; uh, they somehow failed for not ha- being married and not having children, and yet at the very same time, it disparages women who are married and have children, and says they should have much, much higher sights. They should they should be pursuing much greater careers in the city. Do you see? There's well, which is it? It's schizophrenic. We don't have time to unpack all of this here. But here Paul assumes what the rest of the Bible teaches, that men and women are absolutely equal in dignity and worth. But nonetheless, by virtue of our differing biology, that we're different to one another. There's an asymmetry in terms of a husband and wife. Elsewhere, of course, Paul uh, values and elevates single women he often names them in his lists of people who he co-works with in the proclamation of the gospel he clearly elevates clearly values single women but here he encourages the married women of crete to embrace their calling as one which is full of dignity and the crucial thing i want us to notice and we can misunderstand here paul does not call married women to be controlled whether by their husbands, or by the church, or by the society they live in. And, and I want to make this really clear, ladies, women, never ever submit yourselves to physical abuse, sexual abuse, or emotional abuse. You're not to submit to that. And if that's something you're experiencing, please come and chat with us, chat with Jules, uh, please seek help. No, women are never called to be controlled. Rather... Paul urges them to exercise self-control in response to the good news that they've heard. Out of a love for Jesus, they willingly desire to be subject to their husbands. If they have children, they will desire to be sacrificially making them their primary concern. Please don't misunderstand again what Paul says in verse 5 when he calls these women to be busy at home. He isn't saying that women should feel guilty for having a career in the city. We have saw that from our first reading from Proverbs 31, that the ideal wife somehow manages to balance children and a career. It's astonishing. Uh, clearly, the ideal wife is a breadwinner. Nor is Paul saying that husbands um, can simply delegate household management over to their wives. Again, elsewhere, Paul holds husbands responsible primarily. Uh, for, uh, for, the, for the upraising, uh, the spiritual upbringing of their children. But let's understand the context here. But Before the invention of reliable contraception, which is a very recent invention, babies would have come along most years, which meant that for most women, working out of the home was the only place for them to work. I asked a, a, a mum this week uh, who, who works in the city, I asked her what her thoughts on what this means for her. What does it mean for her to be busy at home? And she shot me back a message saying, work-life balance is hard, capital H-A-R-D, hard. But my family has to come first. The Cretan women were being tempted to be busy everywhere else but the home. But Paul wants Christians to be different in this culture. I spent a long time there because I want to caveat that rightly, but, but they think the young men have got off the hook altogether. Just look at verse 6. <laughs> Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Social scientists in the West are beginning to notice that men are learning responsibility later and later and later in life. Our culture encourages us to, to have as much fun as we can for as long as possible. Uh, and only then much later should we get married and only then much later have children. Maximize fun and only later take on responsibility. Uh, this prolonged adolescence has also been called the Peter Pan effect after the stage play by J.M. Barrie. Um, you're probably aware of the Disney version but, but Peter's character represent, rep, uh, sort of represents the, the viable potentiality of youth, the vibrant potentiality of youth and something which Wendy, a Wendy girl, she's very attracted to initially isn't she? And yet Peter, he's locked in, a, in combat against Captain Hook, who is the only adult he knows. And Hook himself is chased by the tick-tock clock, who represents the, the advancing slow creep of time and death. So again, we're used to the, the Disney version, but, but the play stage is, is a powerful social commentary on masculinity. You see, like Peter, many young men don't want to face up to their mortality. They don't want to take responsibility. They don't want to turn their potential into reality. So tragically, at the end of the stage play, Peter refuses to grow up. He refuses to grow old with Wendy in London. And so she leaves without him and has a family without him. Instead, he chooses to remain lost in Netherland, with the Lost Boys. And he remains with Tinkerbell, the fantasy woman who demands absolutely nothing of him because she isn't real. I think this play holds a poignant message for our porn-saturated culture. Well, as Paul details here, the various areas of self-control that he thinks young men need to work on we expect him to zero in on, on sexual temptation, don't we? We expect him perhaps to talk about um, how, how they're to drink alcohol. We expect him to, to challenge them and lay into them really hard. But Titus is simply told to encourage them and to set them an example in, in three areas. Integrity, because I think it's very easy for young men to let go of integrity in, in pursuit of their ambitions. In seriousness, because it is easy to prolong that adolescence, essentially be a man-child for too long. In sound speech, because it's easy for young men to be impatient hotheads and not be measured. We can think about that later on in yourselves. But in verse 9, Paul then goes on to address slaves in the Cretan church because he, he considers them just as much a part of God's family as anyone else. Look at verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now, please don't misunderstand Paul. The fact that he simply addresses slaves in the church is not a tacit approval of the slave trade. You might know that the whole Bible story is one of freedom, redemption out of slavery. And elsewhere, Paul explicitly condemns the slave trade and those who, who engage in it. He encourages slaves to seek their freedom if they're able to do so. But where that isn't possible, and let's be real, in, in the first century Roman Empire, it wasn't possible for the vast majority of slaves. Paul is saying, instead of rising up in violent rebellion against your masters, Christian slaves are to witness to their masters by means of their self-control. Now, isn't it great we live in a, in a place where slavery is incredibly rare? It, we haven't abolished completely slavery, even here in England. There's a much, tragically, a lot of trafficking still going on. But the issues here, I think, relating to self-control, I think we can apply them quite we can map them on quite accurately, can't we, to, to, to the workplace? Because all of us are, are servants. All of us are under bosses. I think there's things we can learn here. Instead of quiet quitting or overclaiming on expenses, Christians are going to be upright and different to everyone else around them. So, I guess, just to, to wrap up the, the big theme here, I hope you see that the teaching of sound doctrine is inevitably going to produce this self controlled church but again self-control is not the good news this is simply the effect of good news so you're gonna to have to come back next week and hear that well let, let's look at the passage over again to sweep it over again because there's a second theme i want us to notice uh, the second product of the gospel and that is that the preacher of sound doctrine is going to produce a training church now, any parents here, I expect you, you probably would have had or felt the need to read a book on parenting. And, and um, as Christian parents, we, we, we rightly want to take responsibility for our ch- children's spiritual development. And so we, in our home, we, we read the Bible and we pray with our kids every day. Um, we bring them to church every Sunday. We want them to have midweek fellowship by bringing them along to, to Blazers. But of course, our, our children's spiritual education doesn't begin and end with church. We also nurture our children through a thousand ad hoc interactions. We discipline, we comfort, we celebrate, we share our lives together. Each one is an opportunity to share the gospel, isn't it? Well, it's exactly the same when, as, when it comes to nurturing adult Christians. We see in the passage here that godliness and self-control, they're not just taught in formal settings like this as I'm speaking to you. No, it's also nurtured through a thousand personal interactions with one another. Interactions which are intentional for the purpose of becoming more like Christ. So notice again, look down, verse 2. It is assumed that the older men will be looked up to by the younger men, which is why they need to be worthy of respect. Notice verse 3. The older women, it's the older women, not Titus, who are urged to train the younger women. They need to be taught how to love their families because it's not always easy to do so. And notice verse 6. Titus is to encourage the young men by setting an example. They need to see the Christian life lived out in him. So the assumption throughout the whole passage, I hope you see this, is that generally older Christians are going to be sharing their lives and teaching younger Christians. And I think this is different to our culture, because in our culture in the West, we kind of we often get the idea that the, the older are irre- irrelevant, the older unimportant, the older passé, and, and we can just you know, wave them off. We don't need to listen to them, because the new hot things that we are, um, you know we, we've got all we've got all the truth and we don't need to listen to the older people the bible teaches us to revere our elders for their experience and their wisdom and not to use the opportunity in a sermon to publicly mock them uh, for for their <laughs> Sorry, I, I need to repent and that's why you may have noticed uh, here at ccb we're quite unlike a lot of churches in london See, lot, And I say, argue most churches in London, they, they have very specific age, grade, age group services. So they've got the family service in the morning for this group here. And then they've got the, 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 the 20s uh, service uh, at 6 p.m. And, uh, you know, for the 20s and 30s. And, and then they've got the, uh, the student service at, at 8 p.m. for the cool people at the back. And, um, and everyone's sort of broken up into different groups. And, and, and often that's the same for their midweek groups as well. We deliberately do not do that here. For this exact reason. Uh, you know, even our, uh, our midweek mums groups. Even they have a diversity of people. Uh, there are many single women who go along to that. With no children. Uh, and elderly people who go along. And that's brilliant for the mums. Because they've got people to disciple. And people to look up to. So if you're here. And you are young. And you are single. Please do not spend all your time. Just hanging out with the other young. And single people at church. You have a great deal to learn from people who are older than you, whether they are married with children or whether they are single or widowed or have endured a really difficult marriage. You have a great deal to learn. Their life experience, whatever it might be, is of enormous value. So here's a challenge. I know generally speaking, a lot of the families sit here because they need to dash out when you know the number comes up because their kid needs a wee. Um, but the danger is that this is basically the family zone and then they need to rush off and collect their kids off service and then they go to the corner of the hall afterwards to feed their children because they're starving, which means a lot of you guys on the tiered seating don't ever interact with them outside of Connect Group. Well, here's an idea. Try and mix it up. Try, you know, challenge you. Try and sit in and amongst this group uh, on the red chairs down here. Well, the other assumption in this passage is that the church doesn't just meet together for an hour and a half each week, but rather we're actively engaged in one another's lives. We're intentionally responding to unplanned situations in order to help one another grow in godliness. Now, I know that what you're thinking, if you're, if you're an older person here, you might think, I don't have time to hold the hand of a 20-year-old all week. I've got other responsibilities. I, I, I can't do this. There's no time in my life for me as an older Christian to, to, to realistically do that with all my other responsibilities. But I think we need to think imaginatively. Um, could you chat, work out who's on your c- commute route and, and, and meet someone on the train and chat and pray with them on the way in? Could you meet up with them uh, for lunch or coffee in the city together? Could you go to the gym together? Because really, you need exercise and the young person could probably help you in that area. <laughs> could you invite that person to your connect group a little bit earlier to help you put your children to bed so they learn what it looks like to parent in that situation? I, I'm Personally, I'm eternally grateful for, for men in my life who, who shared their life with me. Not just the gospel, but their life with me. I think of a guy called Will Ruby, who when I was a student at university... He invited me around for lunch every Thursday. He gave me chips and fish fingers and uh, we played Worms together on his PlayStation. And then we also opened the Bible together. I think of a man called Duncan Woods, who when I was a ministry trainee, I lived with him and his wife and I learned from him what it looks like to be a husband, uh, what it looks like to be a father. I think of my own dad, who I saw just yesterday. He is a model of endurance in ministry. He's 78. He hasn't given up. He's keep on going. I ask, who are you following? In your head now, think, who is modeling to you the Christian life, that stage beyond where you are now? Who are you following? Or can I ask a different question? Who is following you? You might think, well, oh, if you're an older person, you might think, I'm not a model worth following. But the fact is, you are being followed, whether you like it or not. Whether by your children or by the younger um, people in your connect group, you are being followed. So your priorities, they're going to look at you and they're going to copy your priorities. That's, you're going to be modeling to them one way or another. So here's the challenge. Will you be a model? And if so, what sort of model will you be? Well, the third effect of the gospel, being faithfully taught, is that we're going to be an attractive Church. I, I don't know what you'd say make, will make CCB more attractive. Um, w- w- how we can be more uh, appealing to to Balaam around us? You might think, well, we need to let's up our social media game, uh, or, or we might think, well, let's let's really you know shorten down the, the length of the preaching, and maybe that will help. Or, or, or you might think, well, let, you know, let's let's get a smoke machine, you know, and, and get some lasers going, and you know, let's make it really. what will make us more attractive? We might have different ideas. Well, our passage tells us what the answer is. The most attractive thing about the church will be our lives. So at the end of verse 5, look at the effect of self-controlled women. The effect is that no one will malign the word of God. Or at the end of verse 8, look at the effect of self-controlled young men. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Or the end of verse 10, notice the effect of self-controlled workers. So that in every way they make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Isn't it funny? Our world absolutely hates the idea of self-control. They, 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 they don't like that. They don't like the idea of marriages where there's an asymmetric distribution of roles. They don't like the idea of workers being subject to their bosses. But here's the thing when we practically demonstrate them, they will be attractive. Seeing a husband sacrificially lay down his life for his wife will be attractive. Seeing a worker take a rebuke from his boss, even though he's not at fault, will be attractive. Uh, seeing an old woman not joining in the gossip will be attractive. Attractive years ago, the Evangelical Alliance uh, produced a whole bunch of statistics on um, on what Britons think of Christians, and, and the results are really interesting. And uh, did you know, sixty-seven percent of people in this country know a Christian that they like? Okay, that's good. Sixty-seven percent know a Christian they like. Of those people, eighty percent don't know, want to know more about Jesus. But 20% would read the Bible with their Christian friend if they asked them. So that means, presuming your friends like you, four, four out of five of them would say yes if you t- boldly asked them, would you like to read Mark's gospel with me? Four out of five. No, sorry, one out of five. <laughs> Maths, not my, good, not my forte. <laughs> That's right. One out of five of my friends uh, would accept. So that means there are 7.5 million Brits who are just waiting to be asked by their Christian friend, would you like to read the Bible with me? I know there are certain parts of this passage which are very, might not be appealing at all to our culture, but the gospel life is the good life and so if we live the truth, if we're bold in speaking the truth, our friends will be attracted by it. So again, remember, today will simply part one of, of a two-part sermon. So I really need you to come back next week, but I just want to give you a spoiler of what we're going to hear next week. Okay? Next week at Christchurch Balaam, uh, we'll look down at verse 11. So that, that the next passage says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I began this sermon with those words from Walter Mitchell: Whether or not you eat the marshmallow, age five is not your destiny. Self-control can be taught. Friends, the thing which is going to teach you self-control with your tongue, with your body, with your mind, it's not guilt. It's not fear of letting other people down. It's not legalism. The thing which is going to teach you is God's undeserved grace, his undeserved love and kindness to you. The good news is what motivates us to do good. And that is why you must come back next week and hear the gospel. Because this week, we've just heard what the effects of the gospel. Okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you that you don't just want us to be forgiven. You want us to be good. You want us to live lives that reflect Jesus Christ. Lives which bring transformation to those who don't know him. So Lord, as we chat afterwards about this passage, as we try and apply it further, as we chat together, Father, help us to wrestle with your word and to consider personally how we need to respond to your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.